Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a podcast uh, series that we're calling Living Water, and I can't believe we're at episode 13 and we're still talking about it, but water is a way to look at the Bible or look at Bible stories through a new lens. They live in such a water-stressed world, and it continues to this day. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal last week about the country of Jordan being so water-stressed and lacking the water technologies of the Israelis that they've actually cut a deal for Dead Sea rights, if you will, on the Israeli side of their border in exchange for desalinated drinking water for their people. So water becomes political, water becomes power, water becomes a lens through which we can see stories in the Bible. And today we're going to learn something about Samaritans and water, or we're going to say that Samaritans are still a thing, the Samaritans that we know about in the Bible. But to understand the world of Jesus, we must first remember that worship for Hebrews happened in Jerusalem. That's that's the first baseline thing you need to understand. Worship happened in Jerusalem, which is to say that each Sabbath you studied in the synagogue and you prayed in the synagogue, but at least once a year you would walk to Jerusalem for worship. And so for Jesus and his friends living in the Galilee, this would mean a five days walk from Capernaum, five days, about the same distance if you live in Alabama, say Birmingham to Montgomery. So the Bible doesn't really say this, but Jesus lived near the lowest place on planet Earth. The Jordan Rift Valley is part of the Great Rift Valley, which is just the two tectonic plates of Asia and Africa meeting. It's a crack in the Earth that is formed somewhere in Ethiopia all the way up into Syria. So it just runs right through the land of the Bible, which means that the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level. It sits in a bowl. And then you follow the Jordan River Valley down to the Dead Sea, and you're about 1,400 feet below sea level. It's incredibly hot down there. It's incredibly dangerous down there. This means that walking to Jerusalem this way, down this this crack in the earth, means that you never stray far from the tiny Jordan River. It's the only source of water that you've got. Now, I say this, but there are other ways to get to Jerusalem from the Galilee, other ways to get there. I mean, to the center of the country of what we now call Israel, which is to say way up above the Rift Valley, up on the rim, the weather's temperate with Mediterranean breezes and springs of water. Plus, it's a straight shot right down to Jerusalem. So why not walk that way? Well, the answer to the question is simply this. Samaritans lived in those lands, and they were the enemy. Okay, before I can explain to you why they were the enemy, I want to tell you about something exciting that was found in Turkey just a few weeks ago. It's really excited archaeologists. It's a, it's a relief, it's a painting from around 800 BC, and it features Assyrian gods, so they're, they're state gods, but with Aramean features, which means they're Assyrian gods with local features. This teaches us that Mesopotamian civilizations like to blend in with the local cultures and to create sort of a one-world order. And this would happen, and we have it 
a historical record in our Bibles. This would happen in 732 BC as the nation of Israel, which remember were the 10 counties in the north, and you've got the two counties in the south. I'm calling the tribes counties because it's fun to say. Uh, The 10 counties in the north would disappear forever while the Judean nation in the south, the two counties with the capital of Jerusalem, their exile would happen at a later time. Uh, In 732 BC, they're obliterated by the Assyrian Empire, never to be seen again. Now, in the world of Jesus, Samaritans would say, we never went anywhere. Here we are. We're still here. We're the Hebrews uh, of the nation of Israel. But Scripture will tell us otherwise. So in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17, there's this little snapshot, if you will, of history and archaeology. It goes like this. 2 Kings 17.24 The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and Kutha, and Avan, Hamath, and Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria in place of the people of Israel. They took possession of Samaria, and they settled in its cities. When they first settled there, they did not worship the Lord, and therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, quote, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the city of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land, Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and they're killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there then one of their priests, whom you carried away from there. Let him go and live there, and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests, whom they carried away from Samaria, came and lived in Bethel, and they taught them how they should worship the Lord. Well, here lies the drama. Later, in 586 B.C., when the Judeans, the Hebrews, were exiled to Babylon, another Mesopotamian superpower. They kept their distinct identity. Oh, they worked hard not to blend, while while the Israelites didn't. They disappeared. They blended with these other countries. The Philistines, for instance, the bad boys of the Bible, this is Goliath and Delilah and the people, they're always fighting fighting with them down there. If Joshua would fight the Philistines all the time, they disappeared during the exile, which is exactly what the Babylonians intended to do. But the Hebrews remained a distinct people with a distinct nation. And 70 years later, they got to go home. And when they returned to Jerusalem, they wanted to rebuild their city and rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And the Samaritans offered to join in. They wanted to rebuild the temple all together as a family. Now, let's turn to another part of our library that's called the Bible. We're going to look at Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, which is what happens when the Samaritans decide to horn in on the rebuilding of the temple. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were rebuilding a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said to them, Let us build with you, for we will worship your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Esarhaddon of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. And then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. Hey, here's the point. So 
as a result now, now that you know a little bit about Samaritan Hebrew history, as a result, pilgrims, if they're walking through Samaritan lands on their way to Jerusalem to worship, would be taunted at best by Samaritans, sometimes attacked. And so for this reason, they would walk the dangerous and hot and dusty road of the Rift Valley. There you go. There's the drama. You walk the dangerous way because Samaritans will kill you. Now that you know something about Samaritans, isn't it interesting that in Luke's gospel, the first story that Jesus tells after deciding to travel to Jerusalem to die is the story of the good Samaritan. Perhaps we can appreciate the irony now. Another place where we see this is the deep meaning of a story found in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. And I'll read just a few verses to you. This is the third verse. And I'll end at verse 10. Jesus left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, a little geography is in order here, I think. In the, in the world of Jesus, and this ex- excludes the Negev Desert in the south, which is a vast expanse of just wilderness and desert. The world of Jesus is about 120 miles north to south with three distinct regions. You've got Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, and Samaria in the middle. And Sychar, which is mentioned in the story, is right at the foot of Mount Gerizim. Remember the temple that sits on top of the Samaritans? A sidecar sits at the bottom, and, and there's a fork of the road about a half a mile away, and there, there is Jacob's well, which is the scene. So think about the details from the story now that you have located it on a map, okay? Uh, first of all, we're told that this, this scene happens at a well, meaning that it's deeper than a spring, and it requires drawing heavy jars with water. I remember reading somewhere that one of the most important inventions of the 20th century was the washing machine. And that sounds maybe like a joke, but it's very, very serious because washing before the invention of the washing machine required the drawing of water. And this was work that was backbreaking and damaging to the women who would have to draw water day after day. It took most of their day. It ruined their backs and their bodies. It ruined their health. And with the washing machine, not only did you have now a new ease of, of cleaning of clothes, but you also had more time in the week And in many ways, you could say that the invention of the weekend happened with the invention of the washing machine. So you've got a woman drawing heavy water jars. The sad part about this is the Samaritan woman is clearly an outcast because there is a water source in Sychar, but she's having to walk a half mile away uh, to Jacob's well. And it's the noon of the day when it's hot and there's nobody else out there. And plus, she's carrying a heavy water jar a long, long way, a half a mile. So we notice right away Jesus' Jesus' own sympathy for her as he breaks down barriers, even barriers between Samaritans and Hebrews to talk to her, 
to check on her. And then, th- and then that's just to start, right? We could leave it there to say that Jesus is kind to everyone and loves everyone and no one's an enemy. But there's even more. It has to do with water and it has to do with John's gospel. I'll explain. John's gospel is the fourth. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, meaning that they're told with the same point of view. As a matter of fact, almost all of Mark is within Matthew and Luke. So they, they're centered on the same stories, and they're also centered on the same festival. Now, remember, we know now that worship happens in Jerusalem, and so the synoptic gospels center on the story of the Passover. You could say that the way the story is told, it's one long journey, if you will. Jesus' ministry beginning in the Galilee and then ending in Jerusalem where he becomes the Passover lamb. Our communion words are Passover words. We we connect the sacrifice of Jesus uh, with the last sacrifice at the temple and so on and so on. John's gospel is written later. It's written at the turn of the of the first and second century, so it's written about 100, while Mark is written about 30 years before that, around the year 70. While the synoptics center on Passover, John centers on another festival. It centers on Sukkot, which is the third festival that happened in the fall. It's a fall festival, and on the very last day, water would be drawn from the pool of Siloam down at the bottom of the hill, walked up to the top of the Temple Mount and poured on the altar, and then they would pray for rain over the winter so that their crops would grow and they wouldn't die. And they called this last pouring of water living water. Can you see the drama now? Living water. Jesus is claiming to be that living water himself being offered to a woman at the foot of Mount Gerizim, which means that worship is not confined to one place, to one house in the city of Jerusalem. Worship is not confined to one people, but rather God now is accessible to all, even the hated Samaritans. God is busting out all over the place, and it has to do with water. Well, I hope you can now understand that Samaritans are still a thing. There are about 800 Samaritans left in the world. Most of them still live on Mount Gerizim. They're still there, and God still loves them, and God loves us as well. And this podcast now leaves us with a question. Where does God meet you where you are? Thanks, everybody. Friends, thank you for listening to this 2022 season of Living Water, and we will return with new episodes in January. But next week, I want you to join me for a conversation concerning the future of the church, future of faith, future changes, future discoveries at St. Luke's, all seen through the lens of an exciting book that I recommend to everyone titled Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Gadara. As the former co-owner of a legendary New York City restaurant, Eleven Madison Park, he was 26 when he took the helm of this institution that never quite lived up to its potential, eventually making it the top-rated restaurant in the world. But it's more than a restaurant book. Rather, it's a lens through which we can see barriers as opportunities. It's a way in which we can thrive even in our post-pandemic disruption world. So we'll have a conversation. And I'll also invite you through the holidays, if you think of any questions that you might have for me, any reflections upon living water, anything you might want me to talk about in the new year, you can contact us at info at saint-lukes.com. Spell out saint, 
info at saint-lukes.com. I look forward to your questions, and I look forward to keeping living water going in 2023. Thanks, everybody. My name is Ann Todd. I am here today because it is stewardship season at St. Luke's. And in this time, I've been thinking a lot about joy and the joy of giving back. St. Luke's has always been a big part of my life. My parents, Hans and Jeanette, found a home here. And as a result of that, this community watched me grow up, welcomed me back when I returned to Birmingham, has welcomed my husband, Sam, and has embraced us as we're raising our son, Charlie. This place is family. And in all the years I've been a part of this community, it has become very evident to me that if you look for joy at St. Luke's, it will not take you very long to find it. This is a church that embraces every opportunity to rejoice. We ring the bells to celebrate new marriages and welcome new babies. We host lawn parties in Crestline Park, EYC car washes, and jazz concerts at Christmas. We pray over our children's backpacks. We bless our family pets and we have a donkey parade on Palm Sunday. Everyone is welcomed with energy, with music, with laughter, and with great food. The energy here is impossible to miss. Our church is also quick to support one another in hard times. St. Luke's is faithful in prayer for those suffering from grief or trouble. We collect protein bars for Sawyerville, winter coats for Grace Woodlawn, water bottles for friends displaced from Jackson, We volunteer as stair reading tutors and Founders Place friends, and we serve meals at the firehouse shelter. We opened our doors for community prayer following tragedy at St. Stephen's, and we face dark news from Memphis by hosting a morning run to remind the world that light always prevails. The joy that inspires us in happy times is the same abiding joy that carries us in hard times and guides us towards healing. It's the confidence in knowing who we are, but also whose we are. In the book of Galatians, St. Paul says that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and we all know that the Spirit moves at St. Luke's. It's why we come to the communion table. It's why we pick up dinner on Wednesday nights. It's why we stream services on YouTube when we're out of town and listen to the Jericho Road podcast on the way to work. It's why we can feel generations of prayer in this building, and why we delight in the footsteps of our children who feel so loved and so safe in this place. Gratitude for all of these things is the foundation of our joy. And that gratitude is what moves us to give back. Stewardship is an important part of life at St. Luke's. The gift of your dollars keeps the light on here, but it also keeps our talented clergy and staff able to provide the programming that fulfills us. It supports our amazing choir and our children's and kitchen ministries. And before any of those day-to-day operations are budgeted, Our church commits funding to community partners, so we're a part of fighting hunger and responding to homelessness, to providing medical care and improving education in the greater Birmingham area. It's the gift of your time, your talent, and your treasure that makes this place thrive. So I hope you'll join me and my family in pledging this year. If you're new to this or you've never given before, you're not alone. The door is always open. It's never too early or too late to make stewardship a part of your spiritual practice. And if you've been in the habit of giving to the church but have never really thought about filling out a pledge card, I encourage you to think ahead this year. Our leaders are very efficient at running this church, and the information on our pledge card gives them what they need to know to plan a responsible budget and to live out our full potential as a beacon of hope in this community. 
Stewardship is a beautiful act of gratitude, and giving back to this community that we all love is a joy. So who's with me? We are. Thanks be to God.